0: Welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own stories. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. So today, we're going to address two more very special types of poetry. That's prophecy and apocalyptic literature. So let's start with prophecy. First, why don't we start with some definitions? Now, I've listed in the show notes the main books of prophecy as they're listed in like their entirety, meaning the whole book is prophecy. The three basics are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then you have 12 books listed on one scroll originally called the Lesser Prophets. Now, they're called lesser just because they take up less ink, not because they're not as important. But those three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are full of really long, dense prophecy books full of symbolism and metaphors. And so let's start with, what is a prophet? A prophet is simply a person charged by God to speak on his behalf. Now, the main purpose was to hold God's people accountable to the covenants that they had with God. So for example, Hosea, that's one of those lesser prophets. Hosea is a whole book that's a metaphor. The metaphor is to call out the fact that God's people have been cheating on God. They've been adulterers. They've been unfaithful. And this is what many prophets do. They make specific accusations of things happening now. Now, that doesn't mean now in 2023. That means now to the original hearers of this word, the people that they were prophesying to. So it's important to know when the text is being written, because these things that the prophets are doing are for specific people at specific times. Now, many of the prophets not only give these accusations, but they do these stunts. So in Hosea, God actually called Hosea to marry a woman of ill repute, (laughs) someone who was going to be unfaithful, someone who would leave him frequently, and he was called to stay with them. So Hosea's life was called to live out this metaphor of God's people being unfaithful to God. And so that's what these prophets sometimes were asked to do, was to perform these stunts or do something physically that would kind of accompany their words. Also in Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 20, verse 3, it says that Isaiah went nude for three years. Now, why would God call someone to walk around without clothes on? (laughs) It's shame and guilt, right? So this was actually a sign for God's people about how Assyria was going to strip and shame Egypt. Now, you need the context, right? You need the narrative to help you understand the prophecy. So Judah, whenever Israel split into two kingdoms, Judah was one of those kingdoms full of God's people, and they started to look to Egypt for protection from Assyria, So if these names don't really mean anything to you, you can just put it in some kind of context for today. Basically, Assyria is a bully, and they live in fear, the Hebrew people live in fear of this bully. But instead of trusting God to protect them from the bully, they go to another big kid on the playground. And so God calls Isaiah to show them exactly what Assyria is going to do. Egypt can't protect them because Assyria is going to strip and shame the people of Egypt. So their would-be protectors are not going to be able to give any protection at all. Now this stunt shows just how foolish God's people were being for looking for protection from anyone other than God. So prophets point out the now for the original audience, what was happening in their time, and they point to the past to give context and to remind people about God's character. And then, just to keep you on your toes, sometimes the prophets talk about the future. So this is where our definition really comes in handy. Our cultural connotation today can really skew what we think about the prophets and about prophecy. So connotation is just what you think of whenever you hear a word. Like, for example, I think of Texas. <laughs> I think of manners and good southern home cooking and biscuits warm first thing in the morning and politeness and hey y'alls and all those kind of warm, ooey gooey feelings. But that's because I'm from Texas. So my connotation of Texas is warm and that of someplace that's home. Now, I live on the West Coast, and I'm pretty sure that most people's connotations of Texans are bigoted, (laughs) ignorant country bumpkins. (laughs) And not all people think that, but that's a way that people think about that word, Texans. So our connotations do very much kind of cloud the way that we think about things. So it's important whenever we're looking at biblical words to find the biblical definition. So speaking on God's behalf does not necessarily mean fortune telling, which I think is our current like social connotation of the word prophet. It would be somebody who can read a crystal ball, has God tell them what the future is. But that's not a good biblical definition at all, unfortunately, of what a prophet is. Now, sometimes they do refer to the future, but it's always in these vague, metaphorical, heavy on the symbolism dreams and things that can get really confusing. So how do we deal with those? A lot of times it's referred to as, quote, the day of the Lord. In fact, that exact phrase is used 23 times from Isaiah to 2 Peter. Now, 2 Peter is a really good example. Because Second Peter chapter three verse ten is a great example of a poetic metaphor. It reads like this from the ESV version: "The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." Now, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's when God has supreme authority and executes that authority on the people and on the planet. This would have us see that it's a punitive thief who comes in and takes shiny things, but we know God isn't punitive. This is a metaphor. So this is why poetry can be really hard because we have to sit in it. It requires patience. It requires time. So if you come across something like the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, well, what do I know about God's character? Is he a thief? Does he take things that aren't his? No. So what is this trying to tell me? What is this situation? This is speaking to the fact that you can't be prepared. If you knew when the thief was coming, then you would be able to prepare yourself or have the police there or whatever it is. But this is like a thief coming in the night when you're unprepared. Another example is in Amos, another prophet. In Amos chapter 5, verse 20, it says Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? Now, the metaphor of dark and light runs through the whole Bible, starting off on the very first page. Whenever we first talk about creation, it says, In the beginning, there was darkness and chaos, and it was without form. And then God spoke, Let there be light. So we know that the world was dark and full of chaos, and God brought light. Is Amos telling us that we should fear God? that his day is dark and chaotic? No. Just like in Genesis, God brought the light and order and safe, dry land on which to live and thrive. The point is you have to read all of Amos. So Amos 5 verse 4 says, seek me and live. That's what the Lord is saying. Then in 5 verse 6, it says, seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire. So for those who live in the Lord, They're not going to be subject to this all-consuming fire. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and I will repair its breaches. Chapter 9, verse 14 says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. There is hope for those who live in the Lord, who continue to seek him, to want to live in his covenant. That is what the day of the Lord is about, that these people made a covenant with God and the accusation is letting them know where they've faltered, where they've messed up, not so that they can be condemned to darkness and fire, but so they can repent, which simply means to turn away from. So now you have these prophets saying, here's where you've messed up, but just like in creation all the way through, There's hope for those who seek the Lord. So how do we read this stuff? Look for repetition. Amos says the day of the Lord, darkness and light. There's a common theme running throughout it. Hosea is all about adultery and unfaithfulness. There's a theme that runs throughout the whole book. Also, if there's a reference to a person or a place, use those cross references and go and read the story. It gives you the context for what the comparison is that the prophet is making. Remember, the original authors, they assume you know these stories, and they assume that you have already seen the patterns. They assume that you know that creation started with chaotic waters. Now, in our modern day context, maybe we aren't afraid of the ocean so much. It's been conquered, we take cruises for pleasure. It isn't something that most people fear. But we have the hindsight of technology, science, thousands of years. We also have the hindsight of the cross. And so sometimes it can be hard for us to understand why they struggled with things. But this is where they would probably have a much easier time understanding these stories and patterns, but they would have a hard time the cross, because that's something that they weren't familiar with. So it's just a matter of what do you need to work on? Know what you don't know. So if you come across a name and you don't know it, find the cross-reference and go and read that story. It will give life and context to the prophecy that you're reading. So just like with all poetry, you need the narrative to help give you the context for the images and symbolism. You need that narrative for prophecy also. And you're also gonna need it in apocalyptic literature. Now, I'll be honest, this is probably my least favorite. And I'll tell you why. I did grow up in the country and one of my very first early memories is people using the story of Revelation to incite fear and take people's money. Like there was this movement, I guess, of pastors or preachers that would go from town to town and preach the news that the end of the world was at hand. What I saw was these preachers coming into town and preaching that the end of the world was near, and that you needed to give them all your money so that they could go and tell more people. And it put a bad taste in my mouth towards this type of literature. And to be honest with you, I have ignored it for years, for decades. It wasn't until I started inductive Bible study that I realized I wasn't going to be able to ignore it forever. So last year, I started reading through Daniel, and I ended the year reading through Revelations. I'll say I don't have a whole lot of knowledge in those books as of yet, (laughs) but I'm starting because I can't see the whole narrative of the whole Bible without reading the whole Bible. And so it became really important to me to not ignore any book of the Bible anymore. So that's what people I saw use revelations for. But what did God use it for? What is it doing in our Bible? So let's just define it like we did with prophecy. That's the best place to start. A revelation is actually what the word apocalypse means, that's a Greek word for something being uncovered. And so a revelation is like a new idea. It's when God peels back layers to help a prophet see a heavenly perspective of some situation. And a lot of times they didn't understand what it was then. Just like we don't understand it all the time now. You need the Holy Spirit to help reveal these things. So there's five things that you can do to read it appropriately. First of all, we're going to start with the symbols there are so many symbols. So when you're reading through the books of apocalyptic literature, like in Daniel and in Revelation, write those symbols down. That's going to be the best way to see how they connect is by having them separate from the text, because they can get lost in all the symbolism. There's a lot of imagery, and sometimes it can be really overwhelming. So to just have a list of like the seven seals, or the seven trumpets, or the seven bowls in Revelation, and then making a note of what they're doing. That helps pull it out of the text and help you see it outside of that imagery to help you kind of, you know, give it some context and see where they connect. Now, my second piece of advice with that is don't overanalyze the symbols. (laughs) For example. In Daniel 7, he talks about four beasts, and it is actually interpreted as four kings that will come and be on the earth. But I saw those same, I I hate to use the word preacher, but scammers that appeared as preachers taking people's money by using those four beasts as four kingdoms that were on Today's context, like China or Africa, or you know what I mean? Like they would use today's context to try and put meaning on the imagery that was not written for us. We were not the original audience. And that brings me to my third point remember the original audience. There's a point and a purpose to why people were given certain words at certain times. And so it's important to look at who wrote it. And to whom did they write it? So, Daniel is a really great example. Daniel has narrative, but he also has prophecy and he also has apocalyptic literature. Daniel is a great book for you to get into if you want to see all the different types of biblical literature in one book. So, there are several chapters that are full of just visions or dreams, and sometimes they're interpreted. So, that's really helpful. And he also interprets other people's dreams. So let's go back to Daniel 7. He sees four beasts, and then he describes them. And then someone called the Son of Man is given dominion over these beasts by someone called the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days is described as sitting on a throne, a throne that has fiery flaming wheels, by the way, super cool, and clothing like snow and hair of pure wool, So this Ancient of Days character then gives dominion over all the beasts to the Son of Man. In verse 17, the dream is interpreted as the four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So when we put our modern day context on it, it can't possibly mean that because it didn't mean that for the original audience. And it could get really tricky and really messy. Because the point Isn't necessarily who are these four beasts being representative of? So that brings me to my fourth point. Think about the purpose of the writing. What was the point? Daniel 7 says that there will be oppression, and no matter what the oppression is, they seem like gnarly beasts rising out of the sea. But the Son of Man has dominion, and in Him we are safe. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man over and over. It is the most common thing that he calls himself in the New Testament. So it's important that we look at these prophecies, because we need to know what is the Son of Man about? Now, in our modern church, I'd never really heard that phrase very much. It wasn't until I started doing this type of Bible study that this kind of phrase was pointed out to me. I always thought Jesus called himself the Messiah or the Christ. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ. But he most commonly calls himself the Son of Man. And that comes here from Daniel. So this is a huge clue as to who God is, and what Jesus was doing, and why the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy, and ultimately put him to death over it. Now, my last tip for studying apocalyptic literature, and maybe that's just because of where I'm at right now. But Study in community. Find really well respected commentaries. Find really well respected um, books about this type of literature from pastors who you know what their theology is. You know that they could be trusted. And if you don't know who that is, ask your pastor. Hey, I'd like to learn more about revelation, but I'm not really sure where to start. Can you recommend a book by someone that you trust? Study in community. Get together with some friends, maybe a home group, whatever it is, and say, hey, I don't know anything about this book. Can we go through it together, even if it's just one-on-one? Now, you may not come out of that time, maybe even after six months of studying the book of Revelation with all the answers, but that's okay, because you'll have a better understanding than when you started, and it's part of our Bible for a reason. We can't just ignore it. It has a purpose and it has influence on the rest of the book. And this is what apocalypse has always been used for, to help us see God more rightly, to see his character, that there are scary beasts, there are dreams, and there are visions that are frightening, and there's reality that is frightening. But God is always with us. Just like Amos points to light and dark, and creation story gives us the context of that symbol, that there is darkness, there is chaos, but God will always bring the light. And so if we can seek Him, if we can live with Him, His light will not be overtaken by the darkness, but will shine through it and overcome it. And that is definitely worth knowing more about. And it's really good news. Okay, so next up is instructional discourse. We are almost through how to read the Bible. I hope you feel more equipped. I hope you feel more confident in tackling some of these books, and I saved this for last in particular because I think it's the thing that gets preached on the most, that gets used the most, because it's someone telling someone else what to do, and so I think there are so many more pitfalls. That we can get caught up in with instructional discourse. I think it's easy to read poetry and remember that I may not be getting it right, but sometimes it can be harder to see that in discourse because the words seem so clear. So we're going to talk just two weeks about instructional discourse, some pitfalls to avoid, and some ways to read it really, really well. And then we're going to talk about how to do inductive Bible study using Psalms 23. It's a short Psalm that we're all familiar with, but there's so much to be seen and gotten from that. And I would love to show you how I use inductive Bible study method to do that. Don't forget y'all, this is worth your time. It's worth plowing into. It's worth looking at the weird and the uncomfortable verses, the things that don't make any sense, like thrones with fiery chariot wheels on them. Because he's in it. God's in it. Jesus is in it. And Jesus has given his life so you can be in relationship with God. That makes all of this worth it. And definitely good news.